Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we have Sam Visnick, CMT. He's a release muscle therapy founder, certified massage therapist, specialty neuromuscular and clinical massage certified corrective exercise therapy practitioner, and author of Why Didn't My Doctor Tell Me That? In today's episode, we'll be talking about chronic pain and pain neuroscience education applications for chronic pain. This is a great episode, so if you or someone you love is dealing with any sort of chronic pain issues, this is a must listen. Before we head into today's episode, I'm excited to share some details with you from today's sponsor, Dr. Stephen Cabral, board-certified doctor of naturopathy and author of The Rain Bale Effect, whom I've had on the show in the past. He has a really incredible offer for listeners today that will help you hit the whole body reset button and get guaranteed results or your money back. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Are you tired of trying fad diets and juice cleanses only to be disappointed by the outcome? The way to finally lose weight and get well is by removing the underlying root cause holding you back. Your liver filters all the blood in your body every six minutes, but with the influx of toxins in our environment, our livers cannot keep up and our bodies have no choice but to store these toxins in our fat cells, organs, even our brain, so they're not floating around in the blood system. Over time, this toxin buildup begins to cause symptoms of poor health. The Dr. Cabral Detox is a comprehensive full-body functional medicine detoxification system that gently eliminates harmful toxins while rebalancing the body at an underlying root cause level. Benefits of the 21-day detox include decreased bloating and puffiness, lose weight, speed up metabolism, rebalance your hormones, reset healthy inflammation levels, get clear skin, enjoy healthy blood sugar levels, increase energy, improve sleep, strengthen your digestion. This detox has been proven to work for tens of thousands of people just like you. As a limited time offer, Dr. Cabral is providing $100 off a 21-day detox or $20 off a 7-day detox. Head on over to stephencabral.com slash cat, K-A-T, to reserve your detox today. Welcome to the Kaka TV podcast, your source for all things health, happiness, and beauty. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to this. So today we're going to be talking about chronic pain. But before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this type of work? Sure. Well, pretty much for the most part, I have not done anything else besides working in the fitness industry. Pretty much straight out of high school, I became a personal trainer at a large kind of local gym. And this is kind of at a time where things were transitioning in the fitness field. A lot of the old school kind of methods of fitness training and a lot of uh, machines were still popular, the whole Nautilus kind of training revolution and so forth. And there was a movement that was starting to move away from all of that into more what we call functional training. And this is where you started to see these large rubber balls called Swiss balls. And a lot of these uh, functional training kind of devices and gizmos were starting to come out and a lot of focus on corrective exercise and posture and so forth. And at that time, things were all just getting going in the industry. And I got swept up into that. And the work that I had been doing was focusing a lot on that kind of work in which kind of I found a niche for myself that not a lot of other trainers and so forth wanted to work with individuals who were dealing with like complex or chronic knee issues, back issues, and so forth. So I was willing to take all of those cases on and pretty steep learning curve, uh, figuring out how to work with those kinds of conditions and modifying exercise programs and so forth. And I had a lot of mentoring, a lot of good help from people that I sought out to gain more education from. And I was highly recommended to go to to school to become a massage therapist and, and focus on very specific kind of clinical massage techniques. And one in particular was called neuromuscular therapy. And I started combining and blending my work together with movement and hands-on therapy. And that kind of started the whole trajectory. Over years, I looked to add more tools to my toolbox and learn a lot more and and, uh, understand how chronic pain develops and basically some of the best resources we can use to help people who are dealing with these types of issues. How would you describe what chronic pain is? Is it just how often do you have to have this pain for you to consider it chronic? So chronic is, in, in almost with anything you're going to find in this industry, there's a lot of uh, variance in terms of what people would describe in terms of what they think chronic is. But generally speaking, chronic pain is going to pertain to the amount of time that an injury had been 
basically when it first occurred and when it healed, but chronic doesn't necessarily have to be related to an injury. So if we take an injury, for example, let's say you roll your ankle and it swells up, it has an expected amount of time to heal. So let's say six weeks or whatever, you strain a muscle, it could be three weeks. So there's that time uh, period where that tissue is inflammation, it needs to heal, and there's a definitive amount of time where normally it does heal. So we would regard that as more acute pain. The pain that's experienced during this healing phase is natural and it's expected. And when those tissues heal, then that pain should be gone because it doesn't really serve any more purpose. But if if something in the body, for example, a muscle strain, which could be three weeks to heal, the pain is now persisting after that, that period of time. Let's say three months later, you're still having pain in an area where there was a simple muscle pull, then that is no longer an acute functional kind of pain experience. It's now a chronic pain. The pain is existing after the expected healing time of that injury. And generally speaking, most experts will agree that everything in the body generally heals within six months. So if anybody's experiencing any kind of ongoing pain for longer than six months, is a pretty good chance that we can assign the label chronic to that pain. In your opinion, why are so many people dealing with chronic pain? Is it, has this always been going on and we're just like noticing it more because we have problems with pain medications and all that stuff going on? I think it's it's generally hard to track a lot of things because there are certain things that you're, as you you focus on them from a society and from a health industry standpoint, you're going to start seeing more of it and tracking more with data. I certainly believe that people have had ongoing pain issues for as as long as human beings have been around and we may not have paid too much attention to them. But uh, pain itself and and chronic pain, we're probably noticing a lot more about it because there's a lot more research coming out about it as well. And at this differentiation between acute and chronic pain, So as we start to notice the difference between these two things, for example, there's a much bigger difference in the way that chronic pain is being addressed or treated because there's an awareness that chronic pain is such a completely different animal than acute. But certainly there's a lot of factors that will contribute to this. And I think that in some ways you'll find as we have this discussion, there's a lot of things in the process of diagnosis of pain and looking at underlying problems and so forth in the body and the way that our society is in terms of being stressed and so forth, which contribute to chronic pain becoming more prevalent and becoming more debilitating. So for example, one of the things that can exacerbate chronic pain is when somebody has an initial issue. So let's say, you know, their back hurts and they go to the doctor and it could be just a simple, let's say 40 years ago, if you went to the doctor and had a simple ache or pain, oftentimes there was a, a process of just reassuring the individual and saying, hey, I don't think there's anything uh, bad going on here. They may assign some muscle relaxers or tell the person to get off their back or off their feet, I'm sorry, and then give it a rest. And that might be the end of it. These days, there's a lot of differences in the system and how the system works with these things. Right now, I think we know that it's MRIs and uh, x-rays and so forth. A lot of these diagnostic imaging tests are oftentimes being used almost excessively, even when it may not be warranted, because that's the way that these issues or underlying problems are diagnosed. But oftentimes people with simple backaches that would probably go away with some reassurance and and not aggravating it is now being heightened in terms of diagnosis by finding things like disc bulges and so, so forth on an MRI that may not be related to the reason why that person's back is hurting, But now the individual believes that there's something wrong with their back because they had an MRI and their pain was associated with something that was basically a correlation that just happened to, or say coincidence, that just happened to show up on a scan but wasn't really the reason why they were hurting. So now that person believes that there is something wrong with their back and they may actually start to alter their life behaviors. They may not participate in activities that they would love, for example, because they're afraid they might hurt their back. And this actually are some simple factors like this would be enough to actually start developing or putting that person on or sustaining that chronic pain issue because of the way that the nervous system feels an increased amount of alert or threat uh, based upon what happened with that process of the overdiagnostics in the imaging process. I have a question about myself. 
In 2005, I was in a really bad car accident and I had whiplash. So I had that pain around my neck and my shoulders for about a year. It was really bad. And then it went away. And now I feel like if I wear anything that touches my shoulder, like if I have a purse strap or even a necklace, I will get that pain again. Is that reoccurring pain or is that like maybe more psychological in nature or something like that? Well, that's a really good one to dive into uh, and a good example of, of a chronic pain. So the whiplash occurred. So there was in whiplash, classically, there's some damage to the tissue, right? Some violent contracting and some maybe some micro tearing and some inflammation happening in the back of the neck. And at that point, now we, it makes, it would make perfect sense to have pain because that would be appropriate as your nervous system is trying to protect you to tell you, Hey, don't do this. Don't do that. Um, be careful when you're moving because this tissue needs to heal. So out of that expected healing time, let's say we'll give you that window of six months, the rehabilitation process takes place. You probably had to take anti-inflammatories and do physical therapy and so forth. And in that process, the idea was to restore normal function to your neck as those tissues heal and to reduce the guarding and the sense of threat that those nerves were experiencing during usually movement. So every time you would move, you would feel certain things. Now, once all of that tissue had healed, now that nerve sensitivity should be gone. And in your case, it sounds like that nerve sensitivity stayed elevated, even though the tissue had healed. And that's where we start to move into that chronic pain. So there's a lot of things to untangle in there and why that can happen. And in my book, I talk about these different types of pain, for example, and nerve sensitivity that exists after that can be for a number of different reasons. There still could be information that's coming from the tissues going to your nervous system. And when I say your nervous system, and in particular, I'm going to use the word brain, I don't mean your conscious mind. I don't mean that's you talking and, and logically thinking and so forth. I'm talking about the part of your brain that processes the information that's coming from your body. And that all happens in the background. And a lot of people don't know this, but there are no pain nerves in the body. There's really just nerves that send information to the brain. And that information is generally, like you can imagine, is like a volume knob. There's a lot of information or a little bit of information and how much information those nerves are sending depends upon how strong a certain stimuli is. So if I just put my thumb in the area and I gently push down, and it's comfortable for you, that's going to produce a little bit of information going to the brain. But the harder I push, it's like a volume knob. There's more information going to the brain. And when it hits a certain threshold, if I push hard enough, your brain with, through a process I'll describe here in a second, might start to perceive that stimuli as threatening. Hey, if you, if he pushes any harder, this is going to hurt. And so what'll happen is that the brain will collectively, through these number of associations, come together and say, hey, this is threatening. I'm going to send your conscious brain, your awareness, a little bit of threat, like some discomfort. You might feel a little bit of anxiousness. And that way you would tell me, hey, stop pushing so hard because that's start I'm starting to feel threatened by that. And that's a normal process. And as soon as I take my thumb off, then there should be no pain because that stimuli isn't coming in. Now, when people have chronic pain, a lot of probably the best way to put it is the volume knob on that stimuli is turned up even before my finger touches that tissue. So now if I put my finger just resting the finger on the tissue and it's generally a non-threatening stimuli, it's only a little bit of pressure, but your nervous system is already responding as if it's almost at a threat level already. So those nerves are very sensitive to a smaller amount of stimuli. And that process can happen so much that sometimes even putting a purse strap over your shoulder or putting a heavy sweatshirt on, those nerve receptors might already be overstimulated from just that amount of contact, sending threat signals already to your nervous system. And this is the elevation in sensitivity of the nervous system that's oftentimes reported when individuals are dealing with complex chronic pain issues, not only from a, a local area, let's say in your neck or your shoulder, but sometimes people will have this phenomenon happening throughout their entire body all at once. Okay, yikes. I, th I find that hilarious because I've been telling people that just a necklace or just any sort of pressure, the lightest pressure could set it off and they all think I'm insane. Mm -hmm. But it, it's good to know that this does happen and it's not just in my head. 
No. And there's tons of research to support that exact experience. And so this is one of the reasons why I like going on and talking about this stuff on podcasts, because this information is not really well known. We're kind of in a new revolution in the field of pain. And namely, we have the internet to thank because we can get out there and share information and it spreads much faster. But the field of pain, and in particular, what we call pain neuroscience, is different than the fields of orthopedics and even sometimes physical medicine or physical rehabilitation. And that's not also well known that there's studies that are just purely about pain and how pain works in the body. And of course, as a result of that, you have a lot of different things like new treatments and medications, for example, but also that information is slowly kind of dripping into the realm of physical therapy, massage work and so forth, but it's not really there yet. So we still see a lot of um, diagnostic procedures and so forth. When I hear about people coming to me from doctors that are, of course, looking for and ruling out serious underlying pathology. You know, the most obvious thing to do in that case when somebody would say something like that is to make sure that they don't have a fracture in their neck or they don't have some kind of severe underlying disorder. But the frustrating part of that is a lot of times if you were to go get a scan on your neck, there would be nothing significant there. So there would be nothing, no major disc bulges, and they would say, we have some arthritis. There would almost be a hunt to try to blame that situation on some kind of underlying mechanical phenomenon. And when there isn't, there's not a lot of understanding on what to do with that. So the message ends up coming out as there's nothing wrong with you, or it's just stress, or some kind of generally, I would say, meaningless or end result to that, which ends up becoming funny enough, and what the pain neuroscience literature speaks about and has been in my experience, actually may exacerbate the pain experience of the person because they're led to believe that somehow they're generating this problem consciously, like they're choosing to make the pain experience happen, which I believe is possible, but very, very unlikely. Like, I don't know anybody I think has really just kind of like up and decided to be in pain and start creating something like that. I don't think that happens. But obviously, uh, behind the scenes here, when there's a misinformation happening, a process of not knowing about what's going on with your body, that is actually a way to increase activity in a part of the brain that feels more threatened by what is happening because it doesn't understand it and therefore allowing more threatening information to come in from the body because the brain says, this is important. I need to pay more attention to this because I don't know what's going on. And therefore that actually exacerbates chronic pain. I know that's a wild thing, but that's exactly what happens. Yeah. I've also heard that, for example, I have a friend, she has neck pain, neck migraines, kind of like how I have. And she went and got like an x-ray or some scans done. And they're like, oh, you have a little bit like what you were saying, either arthritis, bulging disc, something like that. Right. And then another friend who doesn't have any pain there will get a scan done for another reason. And it's 10 times worse, but they have no pain. And yet they're blaming this on the pain. Yes. And this is pretty common as well. And, and one of those kind of fundamental understandings that I try to teach people is that uh, a human being and an experience that an individual has is not always correlative, in many cases, not at all with what is on their scans. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about, the overusage of medical imaging for diagnostics. Now, um, of course, I don't put any shame on that because, of course, we want to make sure that there's under, not underlying things going on with our bodies. But a lot of times, there is not a lot of uh, correlation of symptoms and seeing behaviorally what the person is experiencing with the findings, rather than almost the entire diagnostic process is purely based upon the actual imaging findings and nothing else. I mean, any doctor that I know have worked with many over the years who's very educated on pain issues and so forth will tell you it is highly inappropriate and highly inaccurate to ever try to look at an imaging scan, an x-ray or an MRI, and just diagnose what is wrong with somebody without actually getting the full experience or the picture of what the person is experiencing before making the correlation between those two. So this is something else that's not very well known as well. And this is something in the industry right now, we still see a lot of this on Instagram and uh, social media and so forth. The idea of continually pushing the idea the concept that posture and lack of quality posture and so forth is the thing that causes people's pain. Uh, 
So if you don't have good posture, I could look at you down the street walking around. And if you have your head is, is too far forward or your shoulders are rounded, this is the reason why you must have shoulder pain or you must have neck pain. And the problem with this is that's completely inaccurate. There have been hundreds, if not probably thousands of studies of this at this point that disprove the link between someone's structural position and pain. You cannot tell who's in pain and who is not in pain by looking at them. And there's been tons and tons of studies on this. But yet this idea continues to drag itself forward that these two things are correlated. And as somebody who's looked at posture and worked at, with people on postural correction as a goal and so forth for 20 years, I can absolutely value, validate this. Now, what I'm not saying is that posture and moving your body into different positions is not associated with getting relief. So if your head is going forward and you're sitting at a computer and your neck hurts and you lift your chest up and retract your chin, if that makes your neck feel better, then great. But the posture itself is not the problem. It's the behavior and the way that you're using your body, which is more likely to be the contributing factor. And that's oftentimes a point of confusion for people to square up that the structural mechanics of the body and the neurology is, is different and they're not the same. And you have to correlate that person's unique individual experience and why they're hurting with some of those postural things. I've seen many, many people get out of pain completely without changing their posture at all. So that happens very frequently, almost to the point where I really dismiss or rarely obsess at all about any kinds of postural findings. Okay, that's good to know because I've also heard that, oh, it's because how you sit or it's because you look down on your phone. That's why you have your neck problems. <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't think that's it. Well, there's a meme that goes around in the physical therapy profession in particular. I, I love to always watch what they're saying is that therapists who are very well versed in this stuff and educated will, you'll see a meme that says, if text neck was such a problem, take a look at this. And it shows people in the 50s on the subway and everybody's standing there reading the newspaper with their head down. It looks exactly the same. So instead of having a phone, you have newspapers. So human beings are always going to be adopting these types of postures. And we do things because they're functional and because they help us burn less energy and do the tasks that we need to do. So there's certainly much more into that concept. I mean, I never want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. But the point is that it's been excessively focused on inappropriately. And the last point that I would say on that is if this was true, that you have to have perfect postural alignment to get out of pain, that has, you cannot explain away the fact that the majority of people that do not have pain who have really bad looking posture, how do you explain that? Because otherwise that would be the case. And two, do you have any idea how hard it is to try to get the, the body to be completely upright and have perfect posture? It is extraordinarily difficult. Even practitioners that exist in disciplines that are highly, highly postural focused, yoga and Pilates, the vast majority of the individuals, even you would consider at mastery levels of these dis disciplines, I could easily point to many postural dysfunctions that these individuals may have, despite the fact that they have years and years and thousands of hours of practicing and working on their posture. So it's an elusive outcome to try to have perfect posture. And let's just be frank about it, a useless endeavor. Good to know. So would you consider chronic pain something that affects more women or men? Now, the statistics show that chronic pain is slightly higher in women and for different types of issues. In particular, if you look at more complex types of chronic pain, more widespread, let's take fibromyalgia, for example, and chronic fatigue, those numbers are statistically higher in women. And it's challenging to fully understand why that might be the case, because there's so many different factors. Is it because of the female anatomy and biology? Mm, probably not. There might be certain tendencies metabolically that are different in women than men, but there's nothing definitive there. But when we look at chronic pain, we have to look at the big picture, because when we look at health, we use something called the biopsychosocial model of health. And we can dive into that a little bit further. But the idea is that when you are experiencing pain, it is not purely a somehow uh, psychological phenomenon where you're just kind of internally trying to deal with it. But the way that you have your pain affects your daily life changes your sociology. It changes how you interact with the world around you. And certainly that is going to have impacts on a lot of different areas of your life and how other people treat you. 
So when other people know that you have chronic pain, your relationships change. A lot of things change. And if we look at the you know social nature of people, the relationship, I would say, the way that men are treated when they have pain is going to probably be much different than the way that women are treated when they deal with chronic pain. And you know, throughout the years, as again, we see that without diving too far into this, but you can imagine how pain was dealt with in these two different populations, even medically throughout the years, it's been different, right? So I think this has something to do with it. Certainly all different types of health conditions and areas is dependent upon the practitioners that the individuals are seeing and the treatments that they select and so forth. But certainly in my opinion, the ability to improve from chronic pain, hardly any different between men and women. So it's dependent upon their ability to identify the things that are contributing to their pain and to take the necessary actions to improve their situation everybody has the same chances of improving from it. I had a bunch of friends that we would talk about when we went to the hospitals to give birth and they would tell me all these horror stories about when they're in pain, how they would be treated so terribly when their husbands would go to the hospital for something very minor and be treated like, oh my gosh, you're in so much pain. And it was just completely the opposite experience. I didn't believe it until it happened to me. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, they really do not think women should be in pain. You just have to suck it up if you're a woman, which is the weirdest thing just because you have a child that they assume that you're able to tolerate mountains of pain all the time. It, it is very interesting. And it's one of those topics that I don't know that much about, but I'm sure that would be a very fascinating one to dive into is that people that look at and researches on how pain is actually treated amongst the differences in the genders and you know what specifically in it is different between the two, but I'm sure that there's something there. Can you tell us a little bit more about the biopsychosocial approach to pain? How do you use it for people that are dealing with pain? Yeah, and you know the biopsychosocial approach is not new. It's been around, I think, since the late '70s, and it was just the idea of understanding how many different, you know, not just with pain, but in all areas of health, how our our health is connected so intertwined in a, in a way where our biology, our sociology, and of course, our psychology are all overlapping and connected. And certain things are so simple in that, let's say, for example, how chronic pain can be exacerbated by certain factors that you might not even think are that important, but as they become connected to your environment, they become embedded in a way where we don't notice them. For example, let's say if, let's say one of a clients who's a male in particular, he, his back goes out, right? And so he's laid up on the couch, his back's bothering him, he's complaining about it, and he's chronic, he's having a flare-up, it's ongoing. But then certain things might need to be done around the house. So he might need to go take the trash out or something like that. And as he gets up to go take the trash out, his wife says, no, no, stop, honey, your back is out, you shouldn't be doing that, I'll do it for you. And so now it alters what a normal behavior that he does on a regular basis, he might take the trash out every week as his job, so to speak. But he does not do that now. And in fact, that small interaction is simple and non-significant as it might seem, is actually reinforcing a, a, a feeling or an internal belief of disability. I cannot do this operation because of my back. And really, it might be quite safe for him to take the trash out, or we don't want to encourage him to be... to pursue less activity because we're building up the belief that there is something wrong with the back, that you should not be doing these things, and therefore reducing the likelihood that he's going to be able to resume back to normal activities sooner just because of a simple interaction. So if you think about how that is, but in an individual who deals with chronic pain ongoing for months and months and years, how many different types of interactions with the environment and with family members oftentimes helps to solidify that pain experience within someone's neurology that are very subconscious. So as we teach about chronic pain, the first step always is education, is how these things can affect that, is to almost assist with teaching the truth, right? What's really happening, educating on what is or is not really happening with saying what the doctor says with your MRIs, hey, your back is actually fine, it is safe to pursue these activities and so forth, but also to assist with somewhat building kind of a shield or a bubble around yourself to protect yourself against some of these kind of factors 
that might you might find exacerbate or contribute to be old beliefs or old frames of mind which support the idea of disability and therefore perpetuating the chronic pain cycle. So this is a lot more of an expansive kind of mindset of looking at all of these other different types of factors that engage with this complex situation of chronic pain that don't purely just look at or involve um, some type of basic structural diagnostic problem that when in reality, the issue is can be a lot more than that. So is an awareness of all of these different factors so that when we are working with somebody with pain, we're not working with something that was a finding on an MRI or something like that. We're working with the person who's sitting in front of us who is having an experience of pain and all of the different factors that kind of mingle in with that person's experience. My husband, whenever either I or my daughter get a sprain on our ankle, he does not let us walk funny to not put pressure on it. He says, you have to walk normally or then it becomes a bigger issue. Do you think that is true? Certainly in the initial stages of an injury, and I think this is probably one of the most important things is, again, that distinction between acute and chronic pain. In acute pain, there is reason to feel pain. And there is a biological function for that that's important, which is if you tear something or you severely sprain or injure something, then certainly that's a good reason to get weight off of it and to actually let it heal. And But understanding how long it takes, like for example, sometimes it's, I think it really is a good idea to go online and go, how long does it take for an ankle strain or a, a rolled ankle to heal? And when you know what that is, it helps set the expectation. But as the tissue starts to heal and you have an appropriate understanding of what's happening and it makes sense to do, you can put more load on the tissues when it is safe to do. But that's almost like the idea of if you have a muscle tear and the idea is to just go ahead and start using it tomorrow and the thing is swollen and clearly there's damage to the tissue, that would probably not be a good idea and would probably delay the time of healing because it does need time to recuperate and repair. However, but if it's a two-week window of time for something to heal and you're still limping on it, avoiding it because you're afraid four weeks afterward, yes, that might contribute to the increase in likelihood of a chronic sensitivity developing as a result of that kind of avoidance behavior. Okay. So I can only milk it for as long as it takes to heal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, and that's the thing that's difficult. And I'm not the expert on acute pain, so I don't like to tell people what to do when something is injured outside of, hey, you should have it checked out to make sure that it is okay if it is appropriate to do. But also at the same time, we are, we can't will ourselves through some magical energy to just physical structural injuries go away real quick. We, we do have to give them time to go through the natural process of healing. Okay, fair enough. In your book, you mentioned that there's different types of pain. Why is it important to understand the differences and can you explain all of them? Yeah, and the kind of the idea is that these different types of pain, and this is something that still is emerging science and trying to figure out, these different types of pain, the more you know about them, the more it can help identify a lot more of a story that is uh, coincides with the person's experience, but also assist with selecting type therapeutics that might be more likely to help the individual with what they're experiencing. So it's always nice to put things into neat little boxes and categories, but unfortunately with chronic pain, that's not exactly how it works. It's even though there is more of one kind of, of pain and so forth, it's really a collage where these things are a mixture where maybe a percentage of it is more of one type of pain versus something else. So it's important to state that to begin with. The classic types of aches and pains that we know of are the simple ones that we experience every day in life. For example, we get a bump, we get a bruise, or we have a tight muscle that's kind of aching in our low back. These types of uh, pains, as we talked about, there are no pain nerves in the body. There's just information receptors. This kind of information, when it becomes noxious or stressful, is called nociception. And nociception is this input that goes from the tissues that goes up the spinal cord to the brain, and it is that just kind of potential stress. And if the brain reads that as noxious and it needs to have action taken, then we experience pain to, in order to do something. This basic kind of nociceptive uh, pain is really responsive to simple therapies that are classically assigned, like using ice, using heat. Ice in particular blocks some of that nociceptive signaling, so therefore it can oftentimes alleviate pain. Massage work, a chiropractic, acupuncture, 
these types of basic therapies oftentimes are very effective with nociceptive pain, corrective exercise. So that's pretty straightforward. And those are easy cases for the most part. Now, the different type of pain that people may experience is something called neurogenic. Neurogenic is essentially the types of pains that are involving nerves where their nerves are oftentimes increased in sensitivity and flared up. And there's a degree of, of irritation that is quite different from that nociceptic pain. And some of these might be sciatic pain, where you have nerve pain that kind of shoots down your leg. Now, that is distinctly different from a muscle ache or pain. Carpal tunnel is another example that you might have, right? But there's also other types of conditions like phantom limb pain, where an individual, let's say, that doesn't actually have a limb experiences pain in that regard, right? So these types of neuro-based things can be parts of that. These require different types of procedures to assist with reducing pain associated with that information input. Now, there's a third category, and the third category is a more generalized situation where instead of the information that's coming from the body going to the spinal cord and the brain is the problem, it's now more of what we call a centralized pain. And that centralized pain is more, can easily be defined by best by saying that the nervous system as a whole, the brain, the processing center of the body, is now on a higher state of vigilance or guarding. And this can happen for a number of different things, trauma, you know, past history of how much pain the experience is, people are experiencing. It can cause the nervous system to basically have a preset on the dial where it is just overly vigilant. It's taking too much information from the body that is really a lot of times non-threatening, and it can oftentimes perceive that as threatening. And this is something like you might be able to uh, understand with what you're experiencing was something that was a non-threatening experience, like i.e. putting gentle pressure on an area and then having a pain response uh, associated to that. Fibromyalgia is very classically a diagnosis that is associated with central sensitization because it's kind of a widespread activity of aches and pains in the body that doesn't seem to be correlated with simple forms of stimulation. There are some individuals who could be sitting at work, you know, just typing away and, you know, just be focused. And when the air conditioning comes on and that air conditioning hits their neck and they feel that cold, that can trigger a, a pain response. So a non-threatening stimuli is being introduced, but the nervous system is reading that information as if the volume knob was turned up way too high. So the types of therapies that you would select in these different areas might be different, even if you look at simple things like medications. Now, medications oftentimes work against different types of pain, but just as a simple example, a lot of people with a simple backache or you know arm ache or whatever might take ibuprofen for nociceptive pain. And something, for example, with, uh, with chronic sciatica or carpal tunnel, they might use some kind of medication like gabapentin, which is more nervous system-based medication designed to reduce neuroinflammation. And in fibromyalgia, there's oftentimes a collection of medications. And again, I think most of us can recognize most of the drug commercials that we see on television these days, especially here in the U.S., um, you know, things like Lyrica and so forth. And so these are different types of medications aimed at targeting different things in the body, right? So in the same way that those things would be used that way, you could consider, well, and what would massage work best for? What would chiropractic work best for? What would meditation work best for? Now, certainly a lot of therapies would work in many of these categories, right? And, but also there's going to be ones where they tend to work better in. And those are the types of ideas that are kind of like floating and developing now in the pain field, which is really about just trying to target how to more effectively give people the relief that they're looking for by understanding how to fit the right therapeutic modalities to the type of pain that they're experiencing. Can you explain what is pain neuroscience education and go over the four pillars? Yeah. So pain neuroscience education is kind of the, I would say, an, a newer concept, um, but an old idea. And the idea was that when people have chronic pain, if you can educate them more about what is happening to help them provide better self-care. So for example, I think long ago before pain neuroscience came around, there was like back school where individuals who would be dealing with ongoing back problems 
would participate in more like a classroom setting where you would learn how to lift things properly, how to, you know, if you had to change your baby on a regular basis, how would you position your body to reduce strain on your back? So it was like a self-care kind of thing. The challenge with that is, is that those are oftentimes helpful, but really what they tended to do, unfortunately, was reinforce the idea of how cautious you have to be with your body if you have certain types of aches and pains. So by contrast, pain neuroscience education is about teaching people about how pain works and these connections between certain things. Like we talked about a helpful idea, which is don't obsess about your posture because posture and pain have a very weak connection. So therefore, it would stop or help to educate people on how to not be excessively anxious about their posture, for example, and that might improve their situation by reducing their anxiety and stress in that regard, but a lot of other things. So as I'm talking with you, we're actually talking about a lot of pain neuroscience education. We're talking about how pain works, and that helps to clean up belief systems and ideas and so forth, which the that oftentimes lead to behaviors that can be more associated and problematic with sustaining these things that are experiencing in someone's life in terms of avoidance behaviors and so forth, but also at the same time bring a sense of hope and understanding that there's a lot more out there that you can do to help alleviate the chronic aches and pains that you're experiencing and both, of course, having people understand what it is that you're experiencing is immensely helpful as well. So it's a very good first step, and it's something I like to do with everybody that comes in with long-term chronic pain. And, and for example, a lot of people I see have been to many practitioners. So as you've seen many practitioners, it's very unlikely um, that people get to this point but have not actually been explained pain. They really haven't. And even after doing this work, pain neuroscience for at least 10 years, it's always surprising to me how many people come in that don't know anything about pain. And they are only taught about the actual, has been told to them or their diagnostic, diagnostic process about what the uh, pain might be generated from. And it's usually some kind of specific structure. So there's pillars within the pain neuroscience education is teaching people what the research really shows when it comes to chronic pain and what works. And a lot of people are, I would say, at least have glossed over many of these areas if not have never had them addressed at all. And the number one thing that we teach is that the more you know about pain, the better you're going to be because you can advocate for yourself. You can clean out old thoughts and beliefs that are associated with sustaining the chronic pain cycle. So pain education is number one. And then number two um, is the emphasis on sleep. So there's lots of research that supports this, that when you don't sleep well, there's an increased vigilance and sensitivity in the nervous system and an inability to cope with all different types of stress, but certainly constant stimuli that is painful. So we sleep better, we recover better, we're going to have an improvement in the pain experience, and it's going to feed forward and improve every area of our life that can further enhance our ability to get out of pain. So if an individual is dealing with sleep issues, there should be a concerted effort and you know, maybe multiple practitioners employed to assist the product to improve someone's sleep. The third thing is increase in movement. We oftentimes find individuals with chronic pain don't want to move as much for obvious reasons. They think they might injure themselves, they might exacerbate their pain, lots of different things, fear and avoidance of movement. And one thing, if you could say that is virtually beneficial to 99% of all health issues is movement but movement that's appropriate, that is the right amount for the individual. That doesn't mean go out tomorrow and run a marathon. It means oftentimes baby steps and improvement in the amount of movement that an individual is doing on a daily basis. We also know that movement in aerobic exercise in particular is associated with reduction or improvement in conditions such as depression and anxiety, which almost always are associated with chronic pain. So that has a huge immense benefit globally. And then the last pillar is goal setting. Now, goal setting is not the kind of traditional goal setting that we oftentimes think about, which is just things like making more money or losing weight and so forth. But the process of goal setting in the context of pain is the, we need to move the individual away from the constant experience of paying attention to pain and trying to affect pain directly 
rather to improve the functional characteristics of that, that person's experience. If you're not able to play golf, but golf is the thing that you want to do and you feel that your pain is inhibiting your ability to play golf, then we should set a goal that's associated with getting back out on the course and maybe small dosages and modulating it to move you into the direction of improving functionality, being able to do the things that you want to do. And that has an interesting response in that as we start to move the brain into paying attention to doing more and more of those pleasant activities and improving someone's life, we'll actually see a reduction in the threat in the nervous system and therefore see improvements in pain. So rather than fixating on lots of therapies and so forth that directly focus on reducing pain, we're almost focusing and moving the brain into a direction of paying attention to seeing improvements. And that has a positive impact on pain. So all of these elements, when they come together, and, and I didn't even talk about in those pillars, core exercise or you know any kind of micro therapeutics that you can do like massage or any of that stuff, because those global factors are the thing that's going to make the lion's share of the progress before we even start to dive into the details of all of those little therapies and things that you can do. But what oftentimes happen is people focus on all those granular elements and miss the big picture. And therefore, there's big gaping holes in that person's therapeutic process that have not been addressed, which oftentimes are things that can really help them. Can you maybe pick a specific pain and walk us through how you would integrate these things with that person and how the approach would be carried out? Sure. So let's say somebody calls me and they say that, hey, I've been dealing with a left hip issue and it's ongoing and I used to be able to go out and run and I would like to be able to do that again. But every time I get about a mile into my run, my hip really starts hurting and I have to stop and I can't do it. I've gone to the doctor. They said they ran scan on me, MRI, x-ray. They said, there's really nothing wrong with the hip. And I went to physical therapy. You know, I did a little bit of that. That helped. And then I've seen some massage therapists sometimes, a chiropractor. Everything kind of seems to help a little bit, but it always seems to come back. Okay. So that's a classic story of something simple. So when I interview someone and they the process is quite simple, we're going to do some kind of intake and the intake is going to go through. And I'm going to say, for example, how long you've been experiencing this? What do you think is going on? What is your experience of it? When does it show up and under what circumstances? And this person might say things like, for example, it never bothers me until I run and it only bothers me at one mile in. So this very particular situation and story. So then I would, I would gather additional information. <coughs> Excuse me. How well do you sleep? When you sleep on it, does it bother you? Any of these sorts of things. And I would look for deficiencies. Do they stay up too late? Do they not sleep through the night? Any kind of stressors going on there. Then I would look at things like how much caffeine intake they have and so forth. Looking for factors that might lead to increased muscle tension or lack of recovery and rest in the tissues, which might reduce its ability to endure over the long run. And then what we'll do is we'll do a movement evaluation. And in particular with people who are fit, we want to test some strength and some endurance. I might give them some movements to, to see how adequate those muscles are all functioning. He might be getting tired as a result of one mile into a run. And I'm going to test those factors to see what degree of resiliency is going on and the style at which or the way he moves his body or she moves her body. At that point, what I would do is we would usually do massage work to go through the tissues. That's also a form of assessment to see what's sore, what, if anything, feels abnormal. As working through some tissues, are we seeing some really hot spots and tender areas that might be associated to what they might be experiencing with their hip? And then assign exercises, assign stretches to build up resilience and improve the neutral position in the hip, because I would want to basically bolster the hip to be able to last longer in the run by having tissue resilience and to improve body mechanics so that they're not getting too tired and changing and, and compensating too early into the run. Then what we would do is we would also be addressing some of the other factors in that process. For example, what other conditions are happening when you're running, okay? What is your shoes selection? Also, 
what are you thinking about when you're doing this? Are you expecting the pain to happen at one mile in? Are you checking your watch? What are some of the things that might be contributing? And that requires a lot more of a deep dive to see what that person might be doing and how the nervous system knows when to generate pain and discomfort in the hip at that one mile mark. And the amazing thing is you'll almost always see a pattern emerging where if somebody says they have pain in the hip at one mile, it always is at one mile. It knows not to do it at 1.1 miles. It always happens at a mile. So to me, that's a, a flag right there to pay attention to the factors of how that person's nervous system knows when to generate the pain at this point. And then it's just a matter of manipulating all of these different variables to throw a wrench in the wheel there and to change what is going on so that the nervous system isn't getting a constant and repetitive signal at that point to start generating the pain experience. So that's a little bit difficult to, to describe on exactly how I would go about that piece of it, but that is how I approach that scenario. So certainly I would look at a lot of the mechanical stuff. I would of course look at tissue issues, but once that is set as a foundation, we're going to start layering in some of those other elements and determining the other factors that might be correlating with what the individual is experiencing and when that pain is showing up. So you're a massage therapist. So I, so do you do a lot of massage work with your patients? And do you find that there are any specific techniques or style that are better for chronic pain? Yes, I do a lot of hands-on therapy with people. And again, for the most part, because I'm used to individuals having experienced a lot of general therapy before they see me. So a lot of people have done general core training, general massage therapy, and so forth. And they haven't really a lot of times experienced very specific massage therapy. And in specifics, what I would say is I ask people, have you ever had anybody, let's say that they're dealing with a hip issue, who've gone into the hip muscles <clears throat> excuse me, and massaged and specifically worked on every muscle fiber that's around your hip 360 and see how your hip feels after that. And of course, not too much of a surprise. Most people would say, no, nobody's ever done that. So if somebody's dealing with a relentless ongoing kind of ache or pain, and in particular, when they tell me that nothing seems to work, then I'm going to pursue that. It's one of the therapies that I'm going to do to say, I have gone through every tissue in that hip to make sure that it's not something simple that is bothering the individual. And certainly it's a good assessment to somebody to say, if they're walking around in my office, let's say it's not that person whose hip only hurts at one mile, but even just walking around their hip bothers them. I'll go through every tissue in that hip and then have them stand up and move around and see if it feels better. And if it does, which a lot of times it does, then I know that I can affect it that we can get pain relief, we can change what's going on in the hip, and that's oftentimes a very good step. So I like manual therapy for the purpose of it's quick, and it really is helpful to determine how much change can be made when you're just kind of passively working on tissues. Passive meaning the person's not really doing anything rather than just kind of laying there while you're working on them. So my mainstay, and it has been since I've begun doing this work 20 years ago, is neuromuscular therapy. And neuromuscular therapy is just being extremely thorough with every single muscle in an area and identifying areas where there's sensitivity and tenderness and so forth. There's a variety of techniques at this point. You know, everything starts with an acronym, you know, three letters uh, that stands for some type of technique. And techniques oftentimes rely upon some underlying idea or ideology or whatever that is about what they think something is occurring. And a lot of them, unfortunately, are not at all grounded in science. There are more stories about what they think is happening, breaking up adhesions, breaking up scar tissue. And we know that the research does not support these things. So these narratives oftentimes drive technique. I, that to me does not negate the techniques. I like myofascial release and active release and all of these different techniques. I think they're good techniques. But what I have an issue with and I ask people to avoid is to get rid of the narrative about those techniques. And instead of aligning your approach to therapy with the technique, you align it with an overall philosophy on how you approach pain. And if you look at that, what we had talked about is identifying and getting an idea of what kind of pain an individual is experiencing. You can select the appropriate technique for what the person is experiencing rather than using a technique and treating every single person with just one technique, trying to shoehorn the person to the technique. 
And I think we've seen a lot of that in the therapeutic industry and many industries as a whole, which is the, you know, you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail philosophy. So I think the alignment of the right technique with the right kind of scenario, virtually any hands-on techniques can be very helpful. But again, it's just getting it to the right circumstances for the right person's needs. And what kind of other therapies do you like to incorporate, such as maybe acupuncture or injection therapy? And can you tell us a little bit about that and if they fit into your paradigm? Absolutely. Everything fits. And it's just a matter of what the person needs. I've worked many, 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 many cases uh, working with doctors while individuals were getting injection therapies or other types of treatments, medications and so forth to manage pain. And my job was to do all of the things that I could do at the same time. So the idea is everybody's trying to, from a, a collective perspective, work as a team worked with many, many chiropractors. Individuals were getting spinal manipulation at the same time they were coming to me for massage work and exercise work. I'm a huge, huge advocate of dealing with lifestyle factors that have been identified to be a problem. If there's hidden sources of anxiety and depression, then having a counselor on hand to assist with dealing with those is huge. If there's sleep dysfunction, if there's uh, issues with sleep apnea and so forth, consulting a sleep doctor, but also a lot of people would benefit from and, and don't really uh, realize that the gold standard for working with sleep and improving it is actually a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that is focused on insomnia. There's a specific protocol that you can get certified in, uh, a psychotherapist or a psychologist for cognitive behavioral therapy to coach people or to work on their sleep issues. So these collaborations are wonderful and they should all work together with the intention of kind of addressing as many elements in the biopsychosocial model as you can. And of course, for me, as a non-clinician, medical doctor, et cetera, I have to work with a team that can provide these resources to people and basically do whatever we can to get that person moving back to uh, whatever their, their goals are. Before we go, are there any general recommendations that you can give our listeners to help them get better and feel better now? The first step, and the first step is always going to be the one I think is the most powerful and, and I can't say enough about, which is to emphasize pain education, to learn what you can about pain. Now, that doesn't mean go and pick up a 300, 400 page book on pain on Amazon. There's lots of additional resource podcasts. These, I've done a number of them. You could check those out online. You could check out my podcast. Um, also on my website, I have uh, access to a pain and neuroscience education webinar that I offer for free inside of a free members area that you can access there. And also inside of there, a lot of additional resources and information. I have an ebook that also write about uh, a lot of these different topics. And I cover things about what does the research really say about caffeine and pain? What does it say about sleep and pain? And kind of dispel all of these myths that float out around there. And the goal and the outcome is to really get people to accurate information about this so they can help themselves. And where can everybody find you online to learn more? Couple places. So first and foremost, my website at releasemuscleththerapy.com. Uh, my podcast, which is Who Knows This? So it is whoknowsthis.com. And uh, I bring on additional experts in those specific areas like cognitive behavioral therapy and physical therapists who talk about a variety of different topics to really do a deep dive into some of these areas and help again, bring forth information that is oftentimes very hard to find. And uh, that's why I started the podcast. And I'm very active on Instagram, a lot of visual stuff there. So people that love to look at what kind of exercises do you recommend? What kind of massage work? That's a great place to see all of that new content that I stick out at the handle is at releasemuscleththerapy.com. Those are the big ones. And then of course, you'll find going to any of those, you'll end up finding my YouTube channel and so forth. I'm, I'm fairly active online when I can be. But as you can imagine, seeing a lot of people at the same time, it gets to be a little challenge to keep up with that too much. Well, Sam, thank you again so much for coming on and sharing this with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I had an episode a while back with Dr. Mona Fahum of Feminescence, and we spoke about Feminescence, Maca Harmony, and their Maca products. And if you're a woman who's ever had hormonal imbalances, if you're trying to come off the birth control pill, or even if you're going through menopause, this is a natural way to help ease that transition and to help 
balance your hormones. There's nothing quite like it, so go to feminescence.com, enter code CAT15, K-A-T-1-5, for 15% off any of their single pack products and definitely go check out the episode. Just search for Mona Fahum on my podcast and listen, you won't regret it. Thank you for listening to the show. Please show your support for the podcast by leaving a five-star review. Learn more about the show and what I have to offer you at katkatibi.com. Consider being a part of the new Patreon where episodes are ad-free and you'll find extra bonus content. Send a voicemail question or email me. Check the show notes for more information.